Okay. Well, we have a wonderfully enthusiastic and talkative uh, crowd today, I see. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Hudson Institute. I'm Charles Davidson, the executive director of Hudson's Kleptocracy Initiative. And we're very pleased to host an event today in conjunction with the Partnership for Transparency. And um, without further ado, Bill Corcoran uh, of the Partnership for Transparency will introduce our featured speaker today, Kendall Day. Bill? <laughs> thank you all. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, Charles, uh, who is director of the Kleptocracy Initiative here at the Hudson Institute. I want to thank him and Nate Sibley from the Hudson Group and uh, Ariel Shaker-Brown and Amy Van Zanen of our team. They're the folks who put all this together. Uh, and we thank the Hudson Institute for hosting us. It's, a, it's just a wonderful opportunity to be here. Uh, I thank you, all of you, for coming. It's a, it's a warm day in July, and uh, we, we uh, even thought about whether it was a good idea to tackle this important topic at uh, this time. So your presence here means that we made the right decision. We thank you for coming. Uh, as Charles said, I'm Bill Corcoran. I'm with the Partnership for Transparency. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that was f founded over 17 years ago uh, uh, by uh, folks, many, many uh, alumni and alumni of the World Bank. Uh, we fund civil society projects uh, in uh, developing countries. Uh, and we're in our 17th year. Uh, this year uh, just opened up an office in South Africa. Uh, and uh, this event is one of a series of anti-corruption events that we uh, will sponsor. Our next event will be in September, uh, we expect, and we're hoping it will be with Christine Lagarde. Uh, we invite you all, and we ask you to uh, sign up at the sign-up sheet uh, here before you leave. Uh, a little over three years ago, uh, the Partnership for Transparency uh, founded the Barry Metzger Rule of Law Initiative. It's an initiative that was named to honor Barry Metzger, uh, the late Barry Metzger, one of the founders of our nonprofit, uh, a fierce advocate for those left out and left behind. Uh, we fund rule of law initiatives in uh, developing countries uh, and uh, uh, I'm delighted to have been a part of that for the last uh, almost four years now. Um, we ask you to think about us when you're considering partnering with a nonprofit for a project. Uh, uh, we would we would welcome your support, and uh, it, it would enable us to continue doing what we're doing. So we thank you in advance for for thinking of us. We have a flyer that explains more. Uh, please take one with you uh, before you leave. Uh, it's a, a real pleasure for me to have the burden of, or the task of uh, introducing Kendall Day. Uh, I spent a number of years in the Department of Justice. 
including years in the public integrity section. Uh, and it was there that Kendall and I were colleagues. We worked together. I had the pleasure of working with him and uh, got to know him very well. Uh, Kendall is a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Kansas and a graduate of the uh, University of Virginia Law School. After law school, he clerked for the U.S. District Judge uh, Benson Legg in the District of Maryland uh, and joined the Department of Justice through the Honors Program, initially in the Tax Division, and then uh, wised up and came over to the Criminal Division. Uh, in January of this year, Kendall was appointed Acting Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division, responsible for the Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section and Narcotic and Dangerous Drug Section as well. He presently oversees more than 200 Criminal Division employees uh, engaged in complex investigations involving um, in prosecutions, uh, 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 investigations, and international law enforcement. Uh, prior to his appointment, Kendall served as chief of money laundering and asset forfeiture, the uh, section, the section responsible for the department's anti-kleptocracy initiative. He supervised the prosecution of groundbreaking criminal cases involving uh, BNP Parabi, Pariba, uh, and and also the kleptocracy action against uh, targeting theft from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, one MBD. He has previously served as Deputy Chief of Public Integrity Section. He prosecuted some of the department's most challenging cases, including the prosecution of Jack Abramoff and the prosecution of members of Congress. And of note to a good number of my colleagues in this room, he also served uh, in the, as the Criminal Division's anti-corruption resident legal advisor in Serbia where he mentored organized crime prosecutors and drafted a criminal procedure code. For his work in the department, Kendall has received numerous awards, including the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service to the Department of Justice. It is my great pleasure to introduce Kendall Day. Kendall, we thank you for coming. The floor is yours. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me in back? Yes? Okay. Um, thank you, Bill, for that very kind introduction. I suspect my mother might have had a role in helping draft that, but uh, I appreciate it. Um, I would like to thank uh, Bill and the other members of the Partnership for Transparency Fund, as well as Charles and everyone here from the Hudson, Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative for hosting this event and for inviting me to speak with you today. I am honored to be here speaking with you about the U.S. Department of Justice's Kleptocracy Initiative and why it is a critical priority for the Department of Justice. As anti-corruption experts and individuals interested in this topic, you are an important ally in the global fight against corruption. Events like the one today are also important as they serve to foster a common understanding of the critical issues involved in fighting corruption and protecting our financial system from its distorting effects. 
Now, as Bill mentioned, I am currently serving as an acting Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division, overseeing the Department's Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section, as well as the Narcotic and Dangerous Drug Section. But in my day job, I am the Chief of the Money Laundering Section, and I would like to use my time today to discuss the work of the section in two key respects. First, as I mentioned, I will talk about the Department's Kleptocracy Initiative its legal underpinnings, the cases we have brought, and some of the challenges we face in our work. Second, I will touch upon why robust anti-money laundering programs are a critical component of the fight against corruption. So let me start with the Kleptocracy Initiative and its underpinnings. As you all are aware, corruption is big business. A 2016 report from the International Monetary Fund estimated that the yearly cost of bribery is between $1.5 and $2 trillion, or about 2% of the world's gross domestic product. It is no secret that the U.S. financial system is a very attractive playground for those seeking to launder the proceeds of corruption, and for criminal actors more generally. We have the deepest most liquid and most stable markets anywhere in the world, and criminals seek to exploit our systems to serve their illicit, proceed, uh, their illicit purposes and to gain access to the money that they have stolen. That's where we at DOJ come in. The money laundering and asset recovery section leads the department's anti-money laundering efforts, and those efforts are a priority for one simple reason, Often, the best way of attacking crime is by following the money. Money is the very reason that organized criminal groups exist. Now, one of the critical money laundering threats we see today is the funneling of kleptocracy proceeds through our financial system. At its core, kleptocracy is large-scale corruption by foreign government officials who are stealing from their own people, extorting improper payments from businesses, or both. As I said before, it's the very transparency and liquidity of our financial system that attracts kleptocrats. When the proceeds of kleptocracy are allowed to infiltrate our system, this hot money distorts our markets and threatens the transparency and liquidity that is so important. We must be vigilant in protecting the system from these harms. In addition, though, kleptocracy threatens the national security of the United States. Kleptocracy chips away at citizens' trust in government and in private institutions alike. It undermines confidence in the fairness of free and open markets, and it breeds contempt for the rule of law. Where kleptocracy is allowed to take root, organized criminal groups and even terrorists will follow. To attack this problem, the Department of Justice established the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative in 2010. The initiative aims to combat this large-scale, often destabilizing corruption by denying kleptocrats a safe haven to hide and enjoy their ill-gotten gains, and by, when possible, recovering public funds and returning them to the victim citizens of the affected countries. At the same time, the initiative aims to strengthen the U.S. financial system against the threats posed by corrupt foreign officials and their associates. It is part of DOJ's broader commitment to fighting global corruption and the money laundering that often accompanies it. 
The Money Laundering Sections International Unit leads this initiative. In the past seven years, the team of dedicated prosecutors has grown from five attorneys to approximately 20. Those prosecutors work closely with several federal law enforcement agencies, including IRS criminal investigations, Homeland Security investigations, and of course, the FBI and its three dedicated international corruption squads based in New York City, in Los Angeles, and right here in Washington, DC. These expanded resources uh, underscore our commitment to fighting international corruption and to preventing the U.S. financial system from being used as a conduit for these crimes. In addition to using the anti-money laundering statutes on our books, our prosecutors also use the powerful tools provided by the forfeiture laws, which are critical to the success of the kleptocracy initiative. While we can and will vigorously pursue criminal charges against kleptocrats and those who help them launder their ill-gotten gains, civil forfeiture gives us the ability to go after what kleptocrats value most, the money and property that is the motivation for their crimes. Civil forfeiture is especially valuable because it can be used when we are unable to extradite the most culpable defendants, but have jurisdiction over the property obtained through corruption. As I mentioned earlier, kleptocrats often seek the liquidity and stability offered by our financial markets, and they store their proceeds here. When they do, the forfeiture laws empower our, our prosecutors to essentially bring an action in court against the criminally derived property. This legal tool allows U.S. prosecutors to pursue corrupt assets even when the defendants cannot be extradited or they are otherwise beyond our jurisdiction. I'd like to mention some recent cases that we have brought, as well as the challenges um, those cases help illustrate. Thanks to our increased focus on kleptocracy, we have had a number of noteworthy cases to date. We have seized or restrained $3.5 billion dollars worth of corruption proceeds. This past June, for example, we announced additional steps in the largest single action ever brought under the kleptocracy initiative when we took steps to forfeit and recover more than $1.7 billion in assets associated with an international conspiracy to launder money stolen from a Malaysian sovereign wealth fund. In another significant matter, we have sought the forfeiture of more than $850 million related to bribe payments made by the world's sixth largest telecommunications company and other firms. Indeed, just last Friday, we announced an action to recover more than $140 million, allegedly obtained through corrupt oil contracts awarded by Nigeria's former Minister of Petroleum Resources. In the Malaysia matter, the money laundering section and the U.S. Attorney's offices for Los Angeles filed civil complaints last year and this year seeking to forfeit and recover assets that, according to our court documents, were misappropriated and diverted by Malaysian officials and their associates from One Malaysia Development Berhad, or One MDB. The Malaysian government created One MDB to promote economic development through international partnerships and foreign direct investment, with the stated goal of improving the lives of, Malaysian, of the Malaysian people. Unfortunately, a number of corrupt 1MDB officials treated this public trust as a personal bank account. 
Our court actions allege that between 2009 and 2015, corrupt Malaysian officials and their associates took more than $4.5 billion from the development fund in four separate phases. The first three phases were described in a complaint we filed last July and resulted in the theft in phase one in 2009 of approximately $1 billion. In phase two in 2012, of approximately $1.4 billion. And in phase three in 2013, of an additional approximately $1.26 billion. Last month, we filed additional complaints to reveal yet another phase in this alleged scheme to steal billions of dollars from 1MDB. The previously undisclosed phase four of this scheme took place in 2014 and resulted in the theft of an additional $850 million. These funds were laundered through a complex web of opaque transactions and fraudulent shell companies with bank accounts throughout the world, including Switzerland, Singapore, Luxembourg, and the United States. The funds were then used to purchase approximately $1.7 billion in assets that we are seeking to recover, including a $261 million 350-foot yacht, a $35 million jet, priceless artwork by Van Gogh, Picasso, and Monet, and a motion picture company that used the funds to finance, among other things, production of the films The Wolf of Wall Street, Daddy's Home, and Dumb and Dumber 2. <laughs> if we are successful in court, we will forfeit this $1.7 billion in property, liquidate it, and ultimately return as much of it as we can to the victim citizens of Malaysia. Now, another kleptocracy initiative case is last year's action involving Vipocom Limited. In tandem with a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act resolution, the Department of Justice filed two civil complaints seeking the forfeiture of more than $850 million constituting bribe payments and funds involved in bribery transactions that were paid to an Uzbek official. The first forfeiture complaint filed in June of 2015 sought the forfeiture of more than $300 million in bank and investment accounts held in Belgium, Luxembourg, and Ireland. The second complaint, filed in February of 2016, seeks more than $550 million located in Swiss bank accounts. As these cases and others show, our kleptocracy efforts truly know no borders. In addition to the cases I've discussed involving Malaysia and Uzbekistan, we have brought cases involving alleged corruption in Nigeria, Honduras, Chad, the Ukraine, Canada, South Korea, Taiwan, Brazil, and others. One important element of our success has been the considerable assistance of our international partners. Because of the global nature of our economy, money often moves across multiple countries. So it is vital that we, as US law enforcement, work together with other countries to obtain evidence and to trace, freeze, and seize assets wherever they are located. The 1MDB matter serves as a model of international cooperation in major cross-border money laundering investigations. And it sends a message that criminals cannot evade prosecution simply by laundering money through multiple jurisdictions. As an aside, I've been a prosecutor for 14 years, Law enforcement has gotten so much better at international cooperation. The 1MDB case in particular, and others that I've mentioned, wouldn't have been possible when I first started at DOJ. 
Now, at the same time, international assistance can present challenges. Obtaining evidence of the underlying corrupt conduct is critical for kleptocracy cases. But when the corruption allegations involve foreign officials who are still in office or whose hand-picked successors are in office, this evidence can be difficult to come by. Witnesses and law enforcement officials in that country may be unwilling to cooperate. And, foreign and the foreign laws may not provide for cooper cooperation in a routine and transparent manner. In grave cases, witnesses can be intimidated. Evidence can be purposely destroyed and corrupt officials can flee to safe havens. Additionally, a legacy of corruption in the political system may have prevented law enforcement authorities from developing the skills and experience needed to conduct sophisticated financial investigations and to be partners with us in these investigations. Another area of challenge in our efforts to attack, to attack kleptocracy may surprise you, and that is how client money is handled by law firms here in the United States. As the allegations in the 1MDB complaint illustrate, law firms and legal professionals, just like financial institutions, can be exploited by criminal actors seeking to conceal or otherwise move illicit proceeds. This exploitation can occur through the use of interest on lawyer accounts, or IOLAs. Lawyers and law firms routinely hold funds on behalf of clients to cover things like future retainer payments. But when the funds are in limited amounts or are held on a short-term basis, a dedicated client account can be cumbersome. Some IOLA accounts allow lawyers to pool these funds on behalf of multiple clients. But IOLA accounts, particularly those that hold and process significant dollar amounts, can present heightened money laundering risks because the financial institutions do not know anything about a law firm's many underlying clients. The one MDB complaint alleges, for example, that nearly $370 million was diverted by the defendants over a seven-month period in 2010 from a 1MDB joint venture into an IOLA account held by a law firm in the United States. The money was then allegedly used by one of the defendants to fund his opulent lifestyle, including the purchase of luxury real estate, a Beverly Hills hotel, a private jet, as well as the production of The Wolf of Wall Street. In other words, $370 million passed through financial institutions where, unless the bank took it upon itself to ask additional questions, the financial system saw these transfers as on behalf of the law firm, not on behalf of the underlying individual allegedly involved in the 1MDB scheme. A third and related challenge we face in our kleptocracy cases is the pervasive use of shell companies, nominees, and other means to hide the true owner of an asset. These sophisticated efforts to conceal the true beneficial owners of assets and bank accounts can significantly slow an investigation and sometimes grind it to a halt. It takes time to trace money and peel back the layers of front companies and nominees that many of the most sophisticated criminal actors use to conceal and launder their proceeds. Grand jury subpoenas, witness interviews, and foreign legal requests are necessary, but sadly not always sufficient to get behind the outward-facing structure of these shell companies. Because of these structures, it can take law enforcement years to break through the barriers and figure out which companies are associated with corruption or to tie them to assets we can recover. And in some cases, we may not locate the criminal proceeds at all. 
Moreover, the failure to establish beneficial ownership doesn't just impede investigations. It also undermines the ability of financial institutions to know their potential clients, to know which of their potential clients pose a risk to their institutions. That hurts our ability to comply with legal obligations not to introduce criminal proceeds into the United States. The use of shell and front companies by criminal actors to conceal or to disguise their illicit activity is still one of the greatest loopholes in this country's anti-money laundering regime. The Financial Action Task Force, which will be familiar to many of you, or FATF, um, is the world's preeminent intergovernmental body for developing and promoting policies to protect the fi global financial system against money laundering and other financial threats. FATF highlighted this gap in an evaluation of the U.S.'s compliance with FAT FATF standards last year. FATF noted the lack of a beneficial ownership disclosure requirement and what it means for U.S. and law enforcement, namely that we, quote, must often resort to resource-intensive and time-consuming investigative and surveillance techniques. Now, the U.S. is taking steps to address these gaps. In May of last year, for example, the Treasury Department published a final rule on customer due diligence that requires financial institutions to collect beneficial ownership information when an account is opened here for a, a legal entity. The Department of Justice views this as a critical step, but only one step toward greater transparency and toward a reporting system that makes it harder for criminals to hide behind opaque corporate structures. Together with our partners at Treasury, the Department of Justice is eager to work with Congress to pass legislation that will address the problems posed by beneficial ownership. Until such legislation is passed, however, the U.S. will continue to lag behind its partners, most notably the European Union, in addressing this significant obstacle in the fight against the flow of illicit money through the banking system and financial markets. Finally, I would like to highlight the importance of robust anti-money laundering programs in the global fight against corruption. Financial institutions are often the first line of defense against money laundering, and their compliance with anti-money laundering statutes like the Bank Secrecy Act and our sanctions laws are fundamental to protecting the security of financial institutions as well as the integrity of the broader financial system. These laws impose a range of obligations on financial institutions, many of which you will be familiar with. The filing of currency transaction reports, reporting on suspicious activity, carrying out effective customer due diligence, preventing transactions that involve the proceeds of crimes, and the establishment of effective anti-money laundering programs. When robust AML programs are in place and operating effectively, they can aid in the fight against corruption in several ways. First, by carrying out the, pro the proper due diligence, financial institutions can help detect efforts by criminals to launder the proceeds of corruption and thus prevent the funds from ever entering our financial system. As I touched on earlier, this shores up the transparency and integrity of our system. Financial institutions can also identify potentially corrupt activities as part of their regular suspicious activity monitoring, and this can be a critical source of information for law, law enforcement investigations. Not only this, but information can help the U.S. respond to requests from foreign countries for investigative assistance, and thus improve our ability to cooperate when we get a request from a foreign law enforcement partner. When there are weaknesses in these programs, criminal actors can exploit these gaps to hide, move, and get access to their criminal proceeds, 
such as those stemming from kleptocracy. As you well know, this deprives citizen, citizens in countries run by kleptocrats of precious resources, corrodes democratic institutions, and breeds instability and insecurity. Let me close by saying that through the kleptocracy initiative, anti-money laundering enforcement, and other efforts, the United States has demonstrated and will continue to demonstrate its strong commitment to eradicating corruption, recovering public funds for use by citizens in countries affected by corruption, and protecting the U.S. financial system from international corruption and other serious transnational crime. But we cannot do it alone. We rely heavily on experts and practitioners like you to help advance these efforts here and abroad. Thank you for your ongoing efforts in this fight, and I look forward to our work together. Thank you, Kendall. We have a very distinguished panel that will uh, make a few comments on this. And at any point, Kendall, if you want to jump in, please do. Um, so they'll each uh, speak for a few minutes. You have uh, uh, many bios uh, of both Gary Kalman, Karen Greenaway, and Frank Vogel in the program. Uh, and um, I welcome... Gary and Frank, I think it's the first time on a Hudson panel. Karen has been with us many times, and we're, we're glad to uh, see you here again. Uh, so we'll start with, with Gary, who I think will follow up a little bit more on this beneficial ownership issue and perhaps on some other matters, uh, and then Karen and Frank, and we will leave some time, uh, quite a bit of time before the end of this program for questions from you all. Right. Um, thanks, Charles, um, and thank you, Kendall, for those comments. Um, I'm going to have a question at the end uh, on something you said, which I was very excited about, so hopefully uh, I got it right. Um, so I just want to, you know, we're going to hear more from the panelists, and you heard some from Kendall about the problems um, with money moving across the borders and the kinds of crimes that are facilitated. Um, what I wanted to do is kind of open with a, a piece about an opportunity to make some progress, um, hopefully in the next year or two, um, based on some new support and new momentum behind a couple of bills that were introduced. It's on the issue that Kendall touched on, um, beneficial ownership. So if people are not familiar and want to learn a little bit more about the topic, let me just suggest a couple of uh, things to do uh, when you're not doing anything else and you're bored and you want to go hang out on YouTube. Um, one is uh, our one of our partners, Global Witness, uh, did an undercover operation that appeared on 60 Minutes where they went to a dozen law firms in New York uh, and had somebody pose as uh, trying to move some illicit money from Africa into the United States. 12 of the 13 attorneys that they spoke with 
all were very free in their advice on telling them how they would set up a series of anonymous shell companies to move this money in, no questions asked. One guy who now is extremely uh, popular um, said, this is not for me, uh, good for him. But the other 12 uh, all talked about how to set up anonymous shell companies. The other thing is, if you actually want to know in the United States how it happens, I would also refer you to type, to type in and search um, Delaware Shell Company Suki the Cat. Uh, and you will find a video, it's about five minutes of somebody registering a company in Delaware, it takes five minutes, and the beneficial owner or the actual owner listed was this woman's cat. Um, so it's a funny video, obviously some very serious uh, problems. And this goes to, for those of you, I'm sure everybody was familiar, last year with the Panama Papers, um, there was a lot of questions about why there weren't more U.S. citizens named in the Panama Papers. Was there some cover-up? Were people trying to protect the identities of powerful people in the United States? Uh, we think the answer to that is no. Uh, that in fact, why would you go to Panama? Because you can just go to Delaware. Or you can go to South Dakota or Nevada or Maryland or Alabama. None of the 50 states actually collects beneficial ownership information. Delaware gets a lot of the press because they're better at advertising. Um, but in fact, uh, no, none of the 50 states collect the true ownership information. Some of them have a little bit more um, reporting than others, but nobody actually collects the information. So that's a little bit of how easy it is to set up a shell company in the United States. There's been a couple of reports quoting the United States as being the top or second easiest place in the world to set up a company. The bills that were introduced um, in Congress in the last month, one in the Senate and one in the House, they're both bipartisan, Mr. Grassley and Mr. Whitehouse and Ms. Feinstein in the Senate, uh, in the House, uh, Mr. Pete King and Ms. Maloney, um, both from New York in, uh, in the House. And the bills are mostly the same. They are slightly different, but they have a very strong definition of beneficial ownership so that we are actually trying to get at the real, natural persons who own and control the company. Um, you would not be able to put in a nominee owner or a director or a manager. One of the problems that was uh, identified in the Panama Papers, they employed somebody in, at the firm, Mosek Fonseca, who signed as the director and presumably the owner of 20,000 companies. That is either the most efficient woman in the world or there's something nefarious going on. Um, both bills do that. Uh, they uh, uh, collect the information in slightly different ways, and I'm just going to go through that quickly, talk a little bit about the support, and then I'll move to my colleagues. Uh, but the in the House bill, it says that the states can collect it, but if they choose not to, um, for whatever set of reasons, then uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at Treasury, would step in and set up a system to collect the information. The Senate bill says we're going to do it at the point of incorporation in the states. Both have their pluses and minuses, and we'll see as the bills move forward, whichever gets more traction, we're for. Um, the reason that there's a lot more chatter about this is in the last year, we have seen incredible new places of support uh, for the legislation. Um, so in addition to a lot of the groups uh, in this room, um, you know, the nonprofit and civil society groups that have supported this for 10 years, we've now seen sectors of the business community start weighing in because they see it's a big benefit. Uh, the first is a consortium of the largest banks, the 20 largest banks in the U.S. Uh, called the Clearinghouse. They have come out in support. 
On the flip side, the Independent Community Bankers Association, the smallest banks in the United States, also support it. The credit unions support it. Uh, there's about six or seven law enforcement organizations from the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, the ATF Officers or ATF Association, um, the Fraternal Order of Police. A variety of law enforcement organizations support um, the legislation. So we're seeing, and there's faith organizations and a wide variety of support, and that has actually, for the first time, gotten the attention of leadership in the House. Uh, where they have said positive things about moving the legislation forward and moving it forward fairly quickly, we think, in the next several months. Um, so lots of, uh, and maybe over-enthusiasm, but we are moving forward and, and really think there's an opportunity here. So let me stop there. Um, no, I think, I think that's, that's great. I mean, the, the beneficial ownership legislation uh, may confound the cynics in fact, because it really does have a lot of support going on. And an interesting analogy is perhaps the Magnitsky Act legislation, which passed overwhelmingly on a bipartisan basis. So, um, but we see a, a lot of evidence that may confound uh, the cynics. And I guess if the French could elect Macron, we can pass beneficial ownership legislation, perhaps. Um, uh, Karen? So uh, thank you all for coming today. Uh, I want to thank Charles uh, and Hudson Institute for hosting us, and uh, thank you, Mr. Day, for your remarks. Um, I, I'm Karen Greenaway from the FBI, uh, and most of my you know, 20-plus year career, I did transnational organized crime from the former Soviet Union. Uh, and about three years ago, I got a call to come down and coordinate on a case that I had uh, related to Ukraine uh, off my squad in the Chicago division of the FBI. Uh, to work with retired uh, uh, supervisory special agent Deb Laprovat, uh, who is the lone person in our kleptocracy program, frankly, for a number of years. Um, and it wasn't that the FBI didn't think that it wasn't important. It was that uh, what we have discovered about these investigations, um, and as Kendall discussed, uh, um, is that they are you know, so vast when it comes to the movements of money that uh, it would just, we couldn't keep doing what we were doing. So fortunately, we had some strong support from the Department of Justice, uh, not just from uh, the international unit uh, in the money laundering section, but also from the fraud section of the Department of Justice, as well as now the antitrust division, uh, in looking at this as a global you know, scope problem. Um, so uh, you would think, of course, that you look at transnational organized crime, and what I used to always say, everybody thinks of the Sopranos and, you know, and, you know, these guys, you know, these knuckle-draggers. And I met more than a few of those knuckle-draggers and put them in jail, you know, and, uh, um, but it's, what I discovered is, is that, you know, as the world became more sophisticated, you know, as it came uh, in money movements, that, you know, our criminals became more sophisticated, too. So how does that relate to kleptocracy? Well, as I've said a number of times now, the same, you know, mechanisms that transnational organized crime uses to move and, and obtain uh, and spend money are used by kleptocrats and they're used by terrorists. Uh, you know, um, uh, it's the same system of enabling. Now, of course, when you bring that up to, you know, people who are engaged in that system, they'll say, well, but there's, of course, a very beneficial and useful use to that, you know, system of enabling. And I'm sure there is, and, and I'm sure they can make a great case for it. 
Uh, but there's also a significant downside. And the downside is that, you know, people who we don't want to abuse our financial system or potentially harm us personally as citizens of this country um, are facilitating their operations with the same system. So, and where does that come in? Well, it comes in with, you know, that we don't know who the beneficial owners are. And, and, and one of the things that we haven't brought up, which is, makes it even more complicated, is in a lot of these countries where these shell companies are created outside of the United States and shell companies created in the United States, they're created by for law firms. And so for us as law enforcement, even if I get somebody to go and, and, and I want to go interview somebody and say to this person, well, tell me who is the beneficial owner that created this company that used your law firm to do it, I can't ask the question as a law enforcement officer directly because that information is potentially privileged. And so, uh, and, and that doesn't just mean in the United States, it means in other countries as well. And so, uh, so now you get, you know, a, a kleptocrat or, you know, a corrupt individual. And, and I like to explain, expand the word beyond just kleptocrat because I think, you know, I've, I've said this before that it gives, you know, it gives other people who are corrupt in a government a pass and puts it on one, the focus on one individual. And, in my experience now with Ukraine for the last three years and in other countries, it's not just one individual who's sitting there at the top doing it. It's a network of people who all benefit from this, you know, this vast, in some cases like Ukraine, theft from the people of that country. And when you look at, you know, the countries that it happens to, you know, particularly regularly, they have a well-developed system of enablers, number one. And number two, you can see the obvious distress it causes in the population, you know, for example, like places in Nigeria. And so uh, to me as a law enforcement officer, you know, in, in doing the work that I've been doing, uh, you know, um, it's a natural fit to go from looking at it from the organized crime, transnational organized crime perspective, to looking at it from the kleptocracy perspective. Uh, and those issues that, uh, that were brought up are the issues that we face in a regular, on a daily basis, sometimes hourly basis in the work that we're trying to do. Uh, and it's extremely frustrating because, you know, um, you know with, a, with a bank robbery, which, of course, the FBI also investigates, you know, I know the victim. The victim knows that they've been victimized. You know, I have my witnesses standing right there. I've got my surveillance camera. I've got the die pack maybe in the, you know, um, in the notes that the bank robber has taken, you know, um, I, with this sort of, of, of victim, I may not ever be able to see or actually touch that victim. Or in some cases, as I was explaining to Charles before he came in, expl even explain to somebody why they are a victim, why they're being victimized on a regular basis. You know, how do I explain to a, a citizen of the United States why they should care about what happens in Ukraine? And my answer is because what happened in Ukraine was facilitated by, by people abusing our financial system, which is the same financial system that you rely on to get your paycheck every day, and that you rely on to take money out of the ATM every day, and that you rely on to get a mortgage every day. If that system is not solid, that affects your ability, your, your ability in, to spend in your own economy, but it also affects your ability to earn money and ability to save money for your retirement. So it has all kinds of long-term effects. And so our challenge has been in doing this work in the, in the last you know, several years is, is, first of all, getting the resources to do it. Now we have the resources to do it, but it seems like it's a constant resell of why this should be important. Uh, um, and, and I can tell you 
that we who are a part of this now uh, consider it, you know, a mission, you know, uh, um, and that's of high importance, and that's why we've devoted the resources that we have. And we continue to work with our foreign partners to try to address it, even if on an obvious, on a daily basis, it's not obvious that it is a benefit to uh, the United States. So I will turn it over to Mr. Bongo. Thank. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Uh, uh, I'm here as a substitute. Tom fast and could make it, but I'll try and impersonate a lawyer and be discreet. <laughs> but I'm not a lawyer, and uh, I thank you for. For this. You know, I'm on a panel with real heroes. Each of the people here, including Charles here at the Hudson Institute, has done and is doing a tremendous amount about the problem you've heard about, and they are succeeding. Uh, and there's a lot, that's part of the good news. Another part of the good news right today is that there is a trial in Paris that my colleagues at Transparency International France have been partly uh, involved with right from the beginning a trial of the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea on corruption. It is the first trial of that kind that the French have ever held, and it is a true landmark uh, when we think of kleptocrats and we think uh, about what's going on. And the fact that it's not just the U.S. that's doing these prosecutions, but others are taking it more seriously. Today is another great day if you're looking at Islamabad. One year ago, the Panama Papers revealed that the children, grown-up children, of Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif had mysterious apartments and properties in London. A Pakistani commission looked into this. They've exposed much of it. The Supreme Court of Pakistan is now looking into it. And who knows, the Prime Minister may fall. Another great piece of good news. But let's get real. Let's talk about what we're really talking about. First, grand corruption is not accepted in any culture. It is the massive theft by public officials of public funds. It is criminal. Anybody who starts talking about cultural this, that, and the other, forget it when you're talking grand corruption. And grand corruption, of course, includes these kleptocrats. We've heard from... Mr. Kendall Day, about the financial cost, and the economic cost. But the real cost is humanitarian. Tens of millions of people across the world are suffering terribly as a result of the funds that have been stolen by their leaders. And the suffering is very real, and people are dying, and I'll get to that in one second. One year ago in London, there was a summit on money laundering, and kleptocracy, and the whole issue of beneficial ownership. And people came away from the London summit cheering and saying, yes, this is a breakthrough. Yes, we're making progress. And 10 days ago at the Hamburg G20 summit, they barely mentioned the subject at all. The very final paragraph of the G20 communique mentions corruption. There is no specific mention in there of beneficial ownership instead of reference to look at previous plans. Around the world, this issue is not being taken nearly as seriously as it should be by government leaders. That's really serious from two perspectives. First of all, brilliant organizations like the FBI who focus on this are underfunded. 
We need far more investigation resources here in the U.S. and in other countries. Those resources are absolutely lacking. Karen and her colleagues are operating on a shoestring budget relative to the size of the problem. And there needs to be some true public support to make sure that this changes. But secondly, maybe firstly, 20 million people face starvation in four African countries this year. It is the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. And to a large degree, it is the combination of grand corruption and extreme violence. And the process of the funds being stolen by the people who are really instigating all the problems in Sudan and South Sudan, just to give you one example, are in Swiss banks and Luxembourg bank accounts and laundered across the world. And world leaders are not even talking about this on the scale and in the degree that it demands. And next year's level of starvation and migration from Africa as a result will be greater. And if we don't do something about the money laundering aspects of this and the corruption aspects of this, we're in trouble. Very briefly, let me just add a few other points. Let's take us back here at home. I'm looking forward, and Mr. Day will tell us about when it's going to happen, when the really high-profile enablers of this money laundering are put in the dock and prosecuted. I can't think of a single top banker who's been prosecuted for this, or a single top real estate broker. And what about the auction houses? Those Malaysians bought priceless art, we heard earlier today. From whom? From the auction houses, who don't ask any questions about where the art comes from, and they don't reveal any details about who bought it. And yet, they escape completely scot-free. So maybe, Mr. Day and Karen, you can tell us what you're doing about the auction houses particularly, because nobody seems to mention them. Finally, let me just go to another point, and a question again for Karen and for uh, Mr. Day. Ever since the early 1960s and the creation of the euro dollar, there have been an increasingly sophisticated, vast network of financial institutions outside the United States that deal in dollar-denominated assets and dollars themselves. They are an enormously important part of the money laundering scenario. And so my question really is, how are you getting your colleagues, the people you work with in Europe, in FATF, to work to prevent those institutions from simply becoming basically risk-free places for the money launderers to deposit their cash? Because if we only go after the U.S., we aren't going to deal with the problem. Thank you. And Karen, can we get you to respond to that? Sure. Uh, well, there's a, a couple of different things. Maybe I'll just start with the auction houses and kind of bring it back a level. Look, um, I think what we're trying, what both Karen and I are trying to illustrate up here is that n we are attacking the problem when we have sufficient evidence. Like that's kind of what points us in the right direction. So if we get sufficient evidence showing that people at a financial institution, auction house, or any other intermediary uh, entity 
know of the illicit source of the funds, then of course that would be a case we'd be looking to bring. The trick is we always have to have proof of the underlying corruption. And so it's a lot easier to come into court and say that resides with the individuals who at the first level took the money out or accepted the bribe payments. But then when they're passing it through uh, on its way to purchasing property or their um, real estate and it's bouncing all over the world or being held in escrow in some place, you need proof showing that at those intermediate steps, the individuals who touched the money and who interacted with the original kleptocrat also knew that these represented corruption proceeds. And that's where those cases get really hard. So look, we will talk afterward. If anybody has that kind of evidence, we'd love to hear it. Because <laughs> uh, it's a case we want to bring, but we need that kind of evidence. So I, I, so that, um, you know, the word new is, a, is a, an extremely important word in, in, in what Mr. Day just said. That's the biggest problem. That's, that's what creates all the problems right here, is why do we care about beneficial ownership? Because it's the person, that person knows the source of the money. And our law requires that we be able to prove that knowledge. And, and ultimately what happens, if you have some lawyer who's sitting in certain countries around the world who's creating this shell company, who's calling somebody else and saying, would you create this shell company? Because that's frankly how it works. It's a network. So, you know, you know, the people who are in certain countries know people in other countries. And they need, you know, when we'll, you know, unfortunately, we'll bang on Panama a little bit because we mentioned the Panama Papers. But, you know, the, the individuals in Panama who are creating the shell companies know individuals in the other shell company havens around the world. You know, and so, and, and they share information. And they might be the person who's calling to ask for the creation of the shell company in, in this effort. So we can have a person in Panama who's a part of a law firm who's calling to have, on behalf of his client, to have a shell company created in, let's say, a European jurisdiction you know, haven like Cyprus, for example. And so the person in Cyprus doesn't know, you know, which is where our problem comes in, that the person sitting in Panama is acting on behalf of his client to create a shell company in, a, in another jurisdiction. And we see this daisy chaining all the time, and we've seen it for years. And so you have a situation where we're trying to put together a case, and what I have to have is I have to have that person who tells me, I knew that the money that was going to go through this account was from this crime. It's a very high standard. We don't have the European standard, which basically you know, some jurisdictions in Europe have, which basically, you know, enlisted uh, um, enrichment. Uh, and, and, um, and so that's the challenge. That little word new, you know, uh, by creating this daisy chain of shell company after shell company makes the person who ultimately is the person we need as a witness to put together our case very far removed from the evidence. And the more layers that you put between it and are allowed through these financial you know, transactions, the harder it is for us to get to the very base, which is often usually in, a, in the country it's stolen from. The second point I would make is the outside, financial institutions outside the United States. Um, our Department of Treasury has you know, some ability to, to uh, conduct regulations of that. I won't talk about how they work. Uh, I'll let for them speak for themselves. Um, you know, we do have, uh, you know, within Kendall Shop, a bank integrity unit. Um, I, but uh, again, it goes back to that, you know, that, um, uh, you know, that word new. So, 
you know, for example, one of the things that uh, we've seen in, in countries is that you get government officials who own bank accounts through shell companies or through third parties or own the bank themselves, or they're the majority shell shareholder or minority shareholder in a bank that's involved in moving U.S. dollars outside of the United States. And so one of my questions that I posed is, is which is not my, you know, it's not my investigative purview is, you know, what can we do, you know, uh, why are we allowing these banks that we know are owned by individuals who are a problem to move U.S. dollars? Why should they get that kind of correspondent relationship? And, and I think that's a, that's a very good part of, our, you know, some questions that we should be asking and things that we should be looking into is about what are our enforcement mechanisms for those banks that are moving our money and our dollars um, uh, you know, on behalf of, you know, individuals who are corrupt, and we know that the owners of those banks are the corrupt themselves. Um, and, and that's also another frustration. And when we see those banks, I can tell you, it's, you know, the banks themselves generally have very little, um, uh, you know, uh, valid business uh, and, and are well-known oftentimes in the jurisdictions they're sitting in, and they have there is significant money laundering risk, and they're very easily determined by, you know, just the overt actions that they're taking in terms of banking, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot. We seem to have to rely a lot on foreign regulators to take action, and a lot of times foreign regulators are underfunded, you know, or understaffed uh, in trying to, um, you know, shore up the licensing within their own country. So that's a huge frustration for investigators as well. I have a question in this regard. If we do pass beneficial ownership legislation, do we have any ideas as to what we can do about the daisy chaining you referred to? Well, so obviously, well, first we start with the Treasury rule, right? To the extent companies are opening accounts here in the United States, that will help because now we will be able to go to the institution and collect information about even minority owners, not just majority owners of, of a company. Um, beneficial ownership legislation domestically gets us that much further along. Any company that's incorporated here would have to disclose who its beneficial ownership uh, uh, resides with. Um, but it is all, us taking action in this space also requires other nations to do the same because only through transparency throughout the international system will we really have the, the greatest incentive and the greatest almost dis disinfecting effect by requiring disclosure of this information. Because as some people have pointed out, this is not a problem we can fix on our own. So if I may just jump in, a couple of things uh, just to, to note. Um, one is I do think, is a, totally agree on the international cooperation. I think there is some movement and we'll see where that goes. But Great Britain just uh, started collecting this information, um, and they actually have public registries, so people can actually see it online. Um, there's some African nations that are moving in this direction. I think Ghana is starting um, a process to, to collect the information, and the European Union is considering proposals also. So the, not every nation in the world, but there is a movement towards collecting this information, and I think that that... Uh, is going to help. The the one thing I do want to say, just I feel I have to say, is the the Treasury rule, the, which is the customer due diligence rule that they came out with um, for the banks having to collect the information, it is a good step forward. There's no doubt on that. But just to say that it is, there are some concerns about the definition that they use and whether you all will actually get the information that you want. 
Um, there's certain ways to get around uh, putting uh, all the owners on. Um, they have to be fairly significant owners in the company. So if you have five owners, then no one gets named as a beneficial owner. Um, that seems like an easy way to get around it. There's also some concerns about whether or not a manager could be named uh, as a beneficial owner. You get rid of the cat thing and the complete nominee owner, but who actually gets named and whether it's an attorney or not is still a concern. So we're, we believe the bills uh, that have been introduced are tighter definitions and will make sure that you all get the information you need so you can, um, and you can pursue these, these prosecutions. Any other comments before we turn to our audience? Can, you know, there's a sort of a sort of dual reality here. There is the nitty-gritty of the law, the regulations, lots of these things. And then there's these huge crooks. Why is Mrs. De Santos in Angola, the daughter, just happens to be daughter of the president, why is she the richest woman in Africa? when 95% of the population of Angola lives basically on the poverty line. We know where she is. We know who she is. We know what investments she's making in Portugal and all the rest of it. Why, why do we just tolerate this? Why We could name right here, as Transparency International did 10 years ago, a whole list of individuals who we know to be massive crooks holding public office. And yet our State Department and others want to treat them all with kid gloves. We invite some of these people from some countries to White House dinners. We fed them, turning a complete blind eye to the fact that they've been cheating and stealing from their people for years. So somehow or other, we have to move from all the good things that's being done on law enforcement and investigation and rules and regulations, which are vital, to a political level of real outrage. Because if we don't, we won't get the traction necessary to get the best legislation, to get the best enforcement, and to get the best, best budgets necessary to do something about it. And I think that we have to bring these two realities together. My final pitch now. <laughs> That's a very good final pitch, Frank. Okay. <laughs> we appreciate it. Um, now, we'd like to uh, open this up uh, to you all. So in terms of our question and answer period, if you could please state your name and affiliation and also keep it to a question. Now, having said that, People always want to make a point, so if it's one, two, or three sentences, that's fine. But anybody launches, who launches into a speech, I will cut off, I promise you, in advance. And we have a couple of, uh, of uh, two or three interns here who have microphones, so please wait for the microphone also. Um, there's, uh, let's see, okay, the lady there, please. Thank you. Hi, Deborah Kagan, uh, Johns Hopkins Size. I wanted to build on this real estate comment that you made. So decades ago, the United States conducted business quite reciprocally, that if we could not own property in another country, other people couldn't own here. But then we had various recessions, and so we allowed um, a lot of foreign investment in our real estate markets. And uh, so, for example, a Russian oligarch owns the New York Nets basketball team and the stadium in which they play. 
I could not go to Russia and buy a KHL team and own a hockey team. So, so my question is, are we going after that? Are we looking at that? Because real estate now is one of the biggest ways to hide these assets. And we're so desperate for this foreign investment from places like Russia and China and elsewhere. This is a real problem in London um, as well with um, Arab countries, Gulf countries and their investment. What are we doing about that? So um, thank you for your question. Uh, this is obviously the investment in real estate is an issue that we frankly have highlighted through the kleptocracy initiative with some of the actions we've taken to recover uh, real estate that we say is uh, purchased through corruption proceeds. Um, but as a U.S. government, uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network that was mentioned earlier, is a, a component of Treasury. And their job is to, among other things, kind of set the rules for what entities in the United States must file reports indicating suspicious transactions or detailing cash transactions. They put out what are called geographic targeting orders um, last year, and they're still in effect now, for real estate transactions in New York, Miami, and, and several other places where the, the real estate is expensive and it might be the kind of place that is attractive, um, precisely because they wanted to gather the data that would be necessary for us to either propose legislation or have permanent rules in place requiring on essentially additional reporting about real estate transactions. So there's already a fair amount available to law enforcement through the title company or the financial institution that's involved, but the, the FinCEN geographic targeting orders really help when there isn't a mortgage, right? When somebody can just come in and pay cash. How do we get information about who's paying that cash and where they got it from? These targeting orders are a good first step. Let me just quickly add on to that. Um, uh, we think that this is a very exciting development. Um, and what is more encouraging to us is that uh, look, the new administration and the last administration, very different views and not a lot of um, overlap in terms of rules and regulations. But one of the things about the geographic targeting orders is they were started by the previous administration. They were for six-month periods. They were renewed once, and then, were, and then recently, it was either February or March, the new administration renewed for another six months an Obama-era rule. We take that as a fairly positive sign that maybe we actually have something here that is truly bipartisan and has support um, across the political spectrum. So just we like that, uh, the orders to begin with, and we were encouraged that they were supported. And the Treasury Department came out and said, because a reporter asked, um, that this was done with the support and knowledge of the new Treasury Secretary. So that was encouraging. Um, the gentleman in front here. In front, front. Hi, Ted Mormon, Independent. It was mentioned that cases require sufficient evidence to be pursued. Besides evidence, is there any kind of national strategy that prioritizes intelligence gathering or case advancement, given that kleptocracy has numerous implications for foreign relations, and some kleptocracies could be more destructive than others? So we go where the evidence takes us, and we have to have... Uh, internally some thresholds for what qualifies as a significant enough case for us to pursue it because as you might imagine and this isn't unique to the kleptocracy initiative we have to make decisions about we can't necessarily pursue every allegation we have to pursue 
um, those cases that we think we're most likely to develop evidence to bring and that are significant enough to make a difference, to have some deterrent uh, and punitive effect. Um, but no, there is no, in the department, the Department of Justice, those are the considerations, not any kind of um, diplomatic or, or geopolitical consideration. It's really more, where do we have sufficient evidence and does it qualify as grand corruption, right, in terms of the amount of money, the level of public official, and other things. And if we have the evidence and it meets that other uh, threshold, we'll, we'll bring, we'll at least pursue the investigation, whether or not we'll be able to bring a case is a different matter. Um, from the FBI's perspective, uh, in, since 9-11, the FBI has changed its methodology uh, in that we, we don't just take what walks through the door anymore. When I came in 20 years ago, I mean, we do have a national strategy. It's, it is published as to you know, what our priorities are going to be and, and being good stewards of the taxpayers' money, where we're going to put our resources. Obviously, we have a lot of things right now that drag, you know, you know, I shouldn't say drag, um, that are prioritized for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, we are part, the squads that Mr. Day mentioned are, is a part of our national, I should say international strategy to prioritize the work of not just the kleptocracy initiative, like I said, but also the fraud section, which would be FCPA, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, investigations in antitrust. Um, and uh, um, uh, we use separate funding. Part of it is, is funding uh, that we get through uh, the Asset Forfeiture Fund to pursue these investigations. Uh, and uh, we actually are in the process of developing you know, longer-term strategies as to making this a more permanent and, and staffed part of the FBI as opposed to something that, that goes with where we get the funding from. Uh, because again, we do see that you know the the work that we do on this side is is as important to our national security as you know fighting you know fighting terrorism. Uh, in that, you know, we see this as a, a national security threat when you have countries that are you know highly corrupt uh, and and are um, abusing their position in the world through corruption. Um, uh, that uh, makes our us less safe given how that money ends up being spent. Uh, and so, yes, we do have a strategy that focuses on that. Charles, can I just add one, one sentence? The complications, an additional complication here is that so much of this money that is stolen by political public officials uh, is done as they work hand in hand with organized crime. We haven't really talked here today yet about that relationship, but that adds enormously to the complications. It adds enormously to the security threat, uh, to the economic threat and humanitarian threat, but at the same time it makes it that much more complicated to, uh, to fully deal with it. And that's why one of the reasons why I was calling us earlier for much bigger resources, investigative resources, international investigative resources to deal with this because organized crime has become an enormous factor as we look at this whole, this whole picture. Yeah. The gentleman in the second row? In the second row here? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Carl Golovic, uh, retired special agent, U.S. Customs, uh, domain reference, and the fed.info. Sir, your outrage at the daughter of the governor of uh, Angola Yes. It reminds me, also mentioning Panama, Noriega, when he was brought down, where did he run for refuge? He ran into the Vatican Embassy. And now this is 
not politically correct, but we've all seen the movie Spotlight, perhaps, which points out how the hierarchy of Rome has globally suppressed and protected serial pedophilia. Now, the Pope has just announced that under UN pressure, the Vatican is considering procedures for excommunicating those guilty of corruption and belonging to the mafia. In 2017, this has just become an issue. So I would ask, maybe you need to look at the top of the system of indulgences, even why do U.S. troops guard the opium fields of uh, Afghanistan? Who has the global indulgence for the, the opium trade? Thank you. Great point. Um, the uh, third row, please. Third row here in the room. Uh, Tanya Nyberg, uh, Magnitsky Act Initiative. Uh, and I have a question to a particular case. Is uh, Pervison Holdings, uh, Magnitsky uh, money laundering uh, linked uh, case, which was settled for $6 million uh, in May without admitting any wrongdoing? And do we have any perspective to overturn this decision? And what is about? What do you think about this case? I, that was not uh, one of our investigations, and so I, I don't have an opinion on it. So maybe just to expand the, um, I guess. So I work at the criminal division of the Department of Justice. There are local federal prosecutors' offices throughout the country. A local federal prosecutor brought that case you mentioned against uh, involving Prevazon Holdings. Um, the Southern District of New York, similarly, we weren't involved, so I couldn't really offer any comment on that. Yeah, the, uh, um, in the second row here, please. Okay. Hi, I'm Debbie LaPravat uh, with The Century. Gary, I have a question as it relates to transparency in like Delaware and in, in, in corporation. Has anybody done the statistical analysis of how many companies get registered a year in Delaware? Of those, how many actually operate in Delaware? How many operate in the United States? Of those, of the rest, how many operate outside of the United States? And how many U.S. corporations have been linked to criminal cases? Because I mean, you can Google, uh, you know, U.S. Shell Corporation and corruption, and you'll see how many in Ukraine or from the Panama Papers or others uh, in Africa, how many cases where money was laundered through a U.S. company who doesn't exist within the United States. So is anybody looking at that as a way to fight the justification that Delaware and other states use as a revenue generator? Um. So uh, let me offer a few thoughts. I don't have well, the answer to all those statistics. Um, and some of it is very difficult to get. We have estimates of the number of companies, but there's actually no resource that says, here's the number of companies formed in the United States, or that are, exist in the United States. Um, in Delaware, for example, there are 1.2 million companies that are registered. 200 and, I may get this wrong, but I'm going to go with about 280,000 companies are registered at one address. Uh, in Wilmington. Uh, it's a one-story building. Um, again, they're very small people that work for those companies. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, there was actually an op-ed, because what you said is a very powerful point. And there was an op-ed that was published uh, last year by a legislator in Delaware who raised the notion that why do we think the fact that we have anonymous shell companies 
registering in Delaware is like some sort of competitive advantage. And he looked at, they have no corporate income tax. They have special courts, which are pretty business friendly. Uh, they have a whole series of things that could be the reason that they are attracting companies. The notion that some huge percentage of those 1.2 million companies are actually anonymous shell companies doing nefarious activities that would shut themselves down, he raised the notion that that seems unlikely. Um, we don't have the statistics, so I can't say for certain whether that, I mean, maybe it's true, but it does seem unlikely. Uh, the lady in the second row here. Hi, my name is Rachel Brewster from Duke Law School. I had a question about the international cooperative aspect of a lot of what you guys are doing. So obviously this is an international phenomenon and uh, for the U.S. to be able to prosecute these cases, we need to have a lot of cooperation as you were saying. And so I was really curious why uh, Mr. Day mentioned that cooperation has gotten better. Um, but you imagine when you go around the world, some places are kleptocracies. They're not interested in cooperating. And a lot of non-kleptocracies have interests in uh, being mercantilistic and protecting their own employers or major financial institutions. And so, you know, what makes other uh, investigators or prosecutors want to cooperate with you? Where do you run into the biggest challenges? And you seem hopeful that it's gotten better over the last 14 years. And so I'm curious about why you think it's really improved. Sure. Thanks for that question. So one of the ways I think it's improved is most of you will be familiar with the formal cooperation process, mutual legal assistance treaties. But that was really the only ball game when I started as a prosecutor. And now there are a number of informal communication or cooperation um, mechanisms available to us that are so much faster. So legally, to, to go into court, we still need the documents or the evidence that came through the formal mechanism. But as part of our investigation, we will use the informal mechanisms, whether it's uh, regulator to regulator sharing between the Treasury Department and its counterpart overseas to help us get bank records, or um, just law enforcement to law enforcement sharing where they agree to set up interviews for us where Karen or her colleagues can go conduct an interview and then we can finalize our formal request to get that witness to come here for a case. That type of informal, faster cooperation has, has really spread around the world and I think has because it's so much quicker to help us complete our investigation, we can bring more cases as a result. Um, so uh, why do I think it's improved? Because now when I make a call overseas, somebody picks up the phone. Um, you know, that, <laughs> that sounds like a really simple thing, but it's true. Um, you know, uh, I told a story a few, a few weeks ago that, you know, uh, when I first started 20 years ago, I had a case where, you know, literally a kleptocrat was writing a check to himself out of the treasury of this country. And um, uh, so I, I, I went to my boss and I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to you know, talk to somebody in the country. And my boss said, well, you write a letter and then it goes to somebody else and then it goes to somebody else. And um, so I, I did actually reach somebody uh, through my letter writing campaign and uh, uh, we went to collect evidence in the country. And unfortunately, uh, uh, somebody blew the truck up with all my evidence on the way to uh, where, where they were going to put it, house it in the capital of this country. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, um, I'm not saying those things don't happen now. Uh, there are, you know, people in some of the cases that we've done who have been physically harmed and trying to do their investigations. 
Uh, but I think that what I'm seeing is, uh, you know, and I've, and I've been to a number of countries in the last three years, uh, on both to work cooperatively and also to provide, you know, uh, training and assistance uh, and mentorship. Uh, we do a lot of that in Ukraine. And what I see is that, you know, while they're not going to take on the president, the prime minister tomorrow, that there is a, a, a group of particularly younger people, uh, you know, uh, in their 20s and 30s who don't want it to be the same and want to make a difference. And so what I'm seeing is, is what uh, uh, Kendall is talking about is like on, on a regular basis, we're going to places where maybe I'm not going to get, you know, the top guy, but I'm going to get somebody who at least is, you know, is trying to do an investigation, is listening to us, is talking with us, is, is exper you know, is, is willing to go out on a limb a little bit and, and, and make an effort uh, you know, to try to do things that they would never have done before, uh, you know, to take tools that we've given them and put those tools into play, um, uh, you know. But, again, they also recognize in, in places, you know, where they have started to create anti-corruption bureaus that there is a limitation that sits at the top of it. They all understand that. Um, but you have to start someplace, and you have to develop, you know, the experience uh, to do those types of cases um, and even if it's just a smaller case, they're learning and, and they're growing as investigators, they're growing as prosecutors, they're getting some successes under their belt. Um, uh, you know, some of that, frankly, is, again, is stymied by this enabling network, which also enables, you know, the people who are stealing to protect themselves. Um, but uh, what I see is, is that I see people who don't want it to be the same. They don't want their country to once again have to go through what Ukraine has had to go through. They want it to be better. They want it to be different. They're finding their core, you know, whatever you want to call it, values, morals, whatever it is. And they're saying, and, and now to, to some of the investigators, it's like the thought that somebody would interfere with their investigation at the top is just unthinkable. That's not going to happen. I'm, it's not going to let it happen. So, you know, things that I would have had to, you know, do through my letter writing campaign, now I can literally, you know, correspond through email, through, you know, you know, communication systems, you know, uh, video technology to try to get things accomplished, which even 10 years ago, honestly, would never have happened. I just wanted to add one, one, one quick point about as to the why, why it's gotten so much better. Um, rule of law capacity building, right? The, the programs that I've heard many of you um, work for, that has been invaluable to law enforcement, right? The, uh, I spent a year, as Bill mentioned, uh, in Serbia working on anti-corruption issues there. And, you know, the Serbians, um, shortly before I arrived, actually, had nothing to do with me. I'd love to claim it as a success. But um, they successfully prosecuted a Supreme Court justice for taking uh, bribes. Uh, that kind of corruption case, very sophisticated, involving sophisticated investigative techniques and it was a successful result, wouldn't have happened in the 90s. But in the 2000s, and certainly more recently, um, because of the, the increased capacity there and a whole host of other countries, enables them to do that and therefore enables them to cooperate better with us. Just very quickly, just following that, um, the Barry Metzger Rule of Law Initiative that, that Bill mentioned earlier is just a model of that. Uh, for, uh, and more of those are working and, and effective. Secondly, there are champions. There are people in public prosecutor's offices in some countries 
were just terrifically courageous to want to do the right thing. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, some of the cooperation on the 1MDB case came from Malaysians. Um, there was, I believe in the final thing, there was some Malaysian participation. In the Alstom case, there was Indonesian uh, participation. In various of the cases going way back, you find that there are these champions who are willing to do the right thing because they think it's right and they stand out and they're, they're courageous. And I think, uh, thirdly, they all go to wonderful seminars on, on this issue at Duke Law School, which is, uh, uh, which is great fun. Uh, the final point, is domestic publics. What's happening in Brazil today, what's happening in South Africa today, what's happening in Guatemala to a degree, and we can go on in more and more countries, the public is outraged by this. That encourages the prosecutors. They know that they've got some grassroots support, and I think that's really actually the best news that we've seen in the last 10 years. Uh, we have time for one that note. Question <laughs> the gentleman in this second row. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Matthew Murray, I just add one quick note to that. Uh, in the last days of the Obama administration, we launched something called the Global Anti-Corruption Consortium, which was designed to bring together investigative journalists, anti-corruption advocates in a cross-border level of cooperation to provide local law enforcement authorities throughout the world better information to investigate cases locally, because that will, uh, by upping their game, that will reinforce what you do at DOJ and the, and the FBI. A question for both Kendall and Karen is, um, if you could just comment uh, briefly on the, the crime of third-party money laundering and what the standard of evidence and proof is for third-party money laundering in the United States and where you anticipate that trending in the future as part of the solution to this set of problems. Thank you. So um, that is, by third-party money laundering, I, 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 I mean, and, and hopefully we have a similar definition, the facilitators, right, the individuals who knowingly help, they're not involved in the, in the crime that creates the criminal proceeds, but they help move the criminal proceeds or they facilitate the movement. Um, that is something we are very focused on at the department. In fact, in the, the money laundering and asset recovery section, you've heard about the bank integrity unit. You've heard about the kleptocracy initiative. We actually have another team. It's a little smaller, but it's also of prosecutors who focus on that problem, third-party money laundering. Um, and you know, Karen can speak to this more than I can, but the, the FBI has, has done a, a great job through this priority-setting process of focusing on third-party money laundering. So in the last several years, it's received very high ranking in their matrix for what criminal threats they want to focus on. Yeah, so uh, um, believe it or not, about 10 years ago, we got rid of our money laundering unit in the FBI. Um, we have brought that back now, uh, and their, their focus uh, is just on looking at third-party money launders. Um, you know, uh, and and so we we recognize that as a as a challenge. You know, um, the standard of evidence is the same for any money laundering case. You know, we're still going to have to prove that the individual's laundering has knowledge. Um, but uh, it is something that we have, re, you know, put we we put back in our lexicon because we realized, you know, it's not just that there's money laundering on on behalf of all of these other entities, organized crime, club turcats, but then there's just money laundering. People are doing money laundering on its own, you know, and facilitating that for a variety of you know of criminal actors. Well, this is a very interesting note to end on, indeed. Uh, thank you all for your participation. And uh...